Israel's greatest king has been through his fair share of adventures. Renegade sons, uprisings, attacks on his life, and the danger isn't over yet. By the time the first book of Kings begins, David is an old man. Two of his sons have died and he is weak and nearing his own death. What better time for another of his sons to step up and announce that he is now king? My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 76, The Playmate. Hello fellow Bible travellers, even if your only day trip is here for this episode. I feel like I'm Michelangelo and this podcast is my Sistine Chapel. Not that any genius is at play, but because I'm taking so long to get to the end. Tiny brush strokes listeners, that's how we'll get there. So, welcome to season 10, the first book of Kings, which, plot spoiler, is all about the kings who follow David. If you don't already know, I'm neither a priest nor a theologian. I'm an advertising creative director, but my day job does involve taking highly complex information about products and services and distilling the essence into a pithy soundbite. Well, that's the idea. Let's see what One Kings has to offer. is told in four books of the Old Testament, and many of these royals also pop up in the writings of Israel's prophets. The first two of these history books are imaginatively called the Books of Kings, and One Kings picks up at the tail end of David's reign. Both Books of Kings are believed to have been written while the Jews were living in exile in Babylon, and explain to them why and how they have had their homeland taken away from them. This pivotal event in Israel's history dominates the bulk of the Old Testament and multiple books describe the lead-up and aftermath while many of the prophecy books warn of the kingdom's collapse beforehand or encourage the survivors to keep their faith in God even though all looks to have been lost. But all that is a long time in the future. Israel at the start of the first book of Kings is enjoying a golden age. Side note, in the original Hebrew Bible, the first and second books of Kings are all one book. By now, David is physically powerless and unable to keep warm even when wrapped in all his bedding. The unorthodox decision is made by his attendants to find a beautiful young virgin to snuggle up to the king and, after a nationwide search, Abishag is brought to David. But, whether through choice or incapacity, the king fails to have any bedroom activity with his new playmate. Sensing that his father may be too weak to rule Israel, David's son Adonijah plans a coup. As the eldest surviving son of David, Adonijah is the rightful heir to the kingdom of Israel. Like Absalom before him, Adonijah enjoys the pomp of being a prince, and he and his retinue ride horse-drawn chariots while 50 bodyguards run ahead of them. The writer of the first book of Kings believes that David should have pulled his son up on this, but failed to do so, allowing power to go to the younger man's head. Surprisingly, both Joab and Abiathar, who until now have been unquestioningly loyal to David, decide to jump ship. 
Abiathar was the only priest who survived the massacre at Nob, covered back in episode 66, and has attended David ever since. Joab is David's military commander and nephew, who has also been loyal to him, though their relationship was shaken after Joab delivered the death blow to Absalom, the rebel son of David, who staged a coup against his father. Joab was demoted, and perhaps it's a combination of feeling snubbed by a man to whom he has been unswervingly loyal, and a belief that David is too frail to rule ably now that he is so old. Meanwhile, Zadok the priest, Benaiah the head of David's bodyguard, and Nathan the prophet remain loyal to David. Adonijah organises a sacrifice to launch his campaign for the monarchy and invites his brothers and all Judah's royal officials to join him at the event which is taking place on the outskirts of Jerusalem. However, there are notable members of court whose names do not appear on the guest list. Neither Adonijah's brother Solomon nor Nathan, Benaiah or members of David's special guard are invited. Concerned, Nathan sends for Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, and explains the situation. David knows nothing of the rebellion in his own family, and Nathan warns Bathsheba that she and her son risk death if she doesn't act fast. The queen is to appeal to David, reminding him of his promise to make Solomon king. She is to break the news that Adonijah is intent on seizing the crown, and while she is with David, Nathan will enter and add his weight to her cause. Despite him being, quote, attended to by Abishag, Bathsheba throws herself at David's feet. She shares her concerns that Adonijah has sacrificed a vast number of sheep and cattle at a feast where he has announced to Judah's great and good that he is now king. She lets David know that both his military commander and one of his priests have defected and worries that she and Solomon might now be treated like criminals. Right on cue, Nathan arrives with news and takes over from Bathsheba, who retreats from the king. Bowing to David, he asks him if he has made Adonijah his successor because he is hosting a banquet at which the guests are hailing him as king. Nathan affects concern, asking David if he has chosen Adonijah to be his heir without any of his friends and advisers knowing. He also throws in that he, Benaiah, Zadok and Solomon were not invited to the festivities either. David may be old, but he reads the situation for what it is. Sending out Nathan, he invites back a hugely grateful Bathsheba, reassuring her that he will honour his promise to make Solomon king. He tells her to bring in Nathan again, this time with Zadok and Benaiah, who also appear to be waiting in the wings. The men are to saddle up the royal mule and take David's favoured son to a spring called Gihon, just south of Jerusalem. Here, they are to pour oil on his head, blast a trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! before bringing him back to the city to sit on David's throne. After publicly and emphatically endorsing David's decision to make Solomon king, Benaiah asks God to make his reign even greater than David's. The men then take the rest of David's elite bodyguard to Solomon, place him on his father's mule and bring him to the Kidron Valley, where the spring specified by David is located. Here, Zadok pours oil on Solomon's head. 
trumpets sound and Solomon is declared king over both Judah and Israel, which by now appear to have arranged themselves along tribal lines into two distinct groups. Crowds have followed the entourage here from Jerusalem and the sound of their music and cheering is so loud that the writer describes the ground shaking. In fact, the volume of the celebratory trumpets is such that it interrupts the party that is being thrown by Adonijah. The son of the turncoat priest Abiathar arrives with a full report of exactly what has just happened over in Gihon. The wannabe king is forced to listen as his guests are regaled with how Solomon has been anointed actual king and is now sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Worse still, all David's officials have offered Solomon their congratulations and David himself has bowed down before God, thanking him for allowing him to see a successor installed in his place. Adonijah and his followers have failed to read the room catastrophically. The hangers-on who realise that they backed the wrong son disperse while Adonijah runs into the tabernacle where he clings to the horns that are a feature at each corner of the altar. Solomon hears that his brother is begging for assurance that he will not be harmed and the response is fair. Adonijah's pardon is conditional. As long as he behaves himself and shows himself to be worth saving, he has nothing to worry about. He is brought to Solomon and bows down before him after which he is ordered to go home. It might seem strange to modern readers that Solomon is anointed as king and placed on David's throne while David is still alive, but many kings of Israel and Judah reign alongside their fathers in the Old Testament, especially if the older king is nearing the end of his life. David knows that his time on earth is limited, and his final task before he dies is to offer his son and heir some advice. He advises Solomon to be strong and to act like a man. Today, this might seem like license for bigotry, chauvinism and testosterone fueled bravado, but in Old Testament times, it suggests strength, bravery and protection. Solomon is to do whatever God needs him to do, remaining obedient to all the laws given to Moses. Doing this will guarantee his success as a king and as a person, his father tells him. It will also ensure God's promise to David that, if they make sure they stick to the rule book, his descendants will remain on Israel's throne forever. Once the ground rules have been laid down, it's time for David to tie up some loose ends. First on his to-do list is Joab, his rogue army commander. David has never forgotten how Joab killed Saul's general Abner, then Absalom's general Amasa, yet somehow omits Joab's most famous slaying, that of David's son Absalom himself. Joab's belt and sandals are stained with blood, David says, and Solomon should not allow him to die of a peaceful old age. Barzillai, on the other hand, is to be treated kindly because of the old man's hospitality and support during Absalom's rebellion. And though David promised Shimei that he wouldn't kill him for insulting him and throwing his support behind Absalom, Solomon is under no such promise. David remains unconvinced that Shimei is innocent and as such he must die. Now that he has got all his unfinished business off his chest, David dies and is buried in Jerusalem, which has already been named the City of David after the man who established it. 
The site of David's tomb can still be visited near the Benedictine Abbey of the Dormition in Jerusalem, although experts remain unconvinced that this is David's actual final resting place. After a rags-to-riches story that leads to a triumphant 40-year reign, the scene is set for Israel to enter an incomparable golden age under one of the most fabulous kings ever to have ruled. Now in sole control of Israel, Solomon has no time for anyone who might be seen as a threat. He needs to act decisively and quickly to send a message that the new king is not someone to be messed with. Having agreed to live quietly and not cause any bother to the kingdom, Adonijah approaches Bathsheba. He reminds her that the kingdom was originally his before David gave it to Solomon, and he has just one request. Knowing that it will be harder for Solomon to refuse his mother than his half-brother, he wants permission to take David's beautiful young concubine, Abishag, as his wife. Showing a surprising lack of understanding of her own son, Bathsheba takes the request to Solomon, who is furious. To him, his older brother might as well ask for the kingdom and be done with it. He appears genuinely worried that Adonijah might be part of a conspiracy that involves the other defectors, Joab and Abiathar. Believing that the men are trying to get in the way of God's plan to establish a dynasty, Solomon announces that his brother must die. There is also a chance that Abishag and Solomon are in love. Some believe that the young concubine is the Shunammite, who is later mentioned in the collection of poetry known as the Song of Songs, believed to have been written by Solomon. With the king unhappy with a liaison, Benaiah is dispatched to execute his orders, and yet another of David's sons is struck down. Abiathar, the priest from Nob, is treated less harshly. For carrying the holy ark and sharing in David's hardships, he is allowed to live, but may no longer serve as a priest. He is sent back to his fields, and the writer notes that the promise made to Eli that his descendants will no longer serve as priests has come true. Eli was the cack-handed high priest who looked after the tabernacle when Israel's last judge Samuel was a boy, and it was Samuel who appointed David as king when he was still a young shepherd. Eli and his sons were such hopeless stewards of the Jewish faith that the Bible records how the family was told that their descendants would not form part of Israel's ongoing priesthood. News of Solomon's purge travels fast, and when Joab hears that axes are falling, he takes refuge in the tabernacle in Jerusalem and clings to the altar just as Adonijah had done. Again, Benaiah is chosen to be the angel of death, and he calls to Joab to come out. Joab wants to be killed in the tabernacle, and, uncomfortable with the request, Benaiah goes back to Solomon for further instructions. The king insists that Joab must die. He believes that by killing innocent men like Abner and Amasa, both of whom were more virtuous than him, Joab has brought guilt on Solomon's family. Solomon sees Joab's death as God's will, and asks that the guilt transfers to his family forever, while the kings of Israel will enjoy peace. Without any further ceremony, Benaiah strides up to the altar and strikes Joab a death blow. After the slaying, Benaiah is elevated to military commander, while Zadok is appointed high priest in his own right, now that Abiathar is out of the picture. 
Meanwhile, Shimei is put under house arrest in Jerusalem, but clearly doesn't understand the clause that tells him to stay inside the city at all times, or risk immediate death. After three years have passed, two of his slaves make a bolt for freedom and hole up in the Philistine city of Gath. Ignoring his curfew, Shimei saddles up his donkey and rides out to fetch them home. He is duly dragged before his king, who wants to know why he reneged on a promise made before God to remain in Jerusalem. Solomon uses the opportunity to punish Shimei for all the grief which he caused to David, and, sword in hand, Beniah rides out again. Now rid of all its troublesome nights, internal security is realised, and Solomon can look forward to a long and glorious reign. With any threats to his throne from within Israel now dealt with, Solomon turns his attention to the world outside. Keen to keep the peace with the neighbouring superpower, the king engineers a marriage to Pharaoh's daughter and brings his Egyptian bride to Jerusalem, where he later constructs his palace, a temple and a retaining wall around the city. The alliance made by Solomon's marriage is probably with the 21st dynasty's most powerful pharaoh, Siamun, who built extensively at Tanis, Mesen, Pyramus and Heliopolis, and whose bronze sphinx can be admired in the Louvre. With no formal temple building, Israelites are worshipping at what the Bible calls high places, Canaanite hilltop shrines that have been repurposed for God worship. The writer stresses that Solomon's actions as king show that he truly loves God and that his only misstep at this stage in his reign is to join in with the worship in these high places. One of these high places is at Gibeon and Solomon travels here to offer a thousand sacrifices to God. That night the king has a dream in which God tells him to ask for whatever he wants. Solomon's response is a refreshing one. Rather than demand money, power or a long life, he tells God how blessed he feels that God was so loyal to his father David, and vice versa. He is thankful that God gave David a son to rule after him, and tells God that he is just a baby when it comes to leading the people who God has chosen to be his own nation. As such, being able to discern between right and wrong would be hugely helpful. God appears to be impressed that Solomon wants to be a better and more responsible leader and didn't hand him a wish list for a long life and supremacy over his enemies. In his dream, the king is told that God will not only grant him his wish, he promises to throw in wealth and honour. Better still, if he sticks to the rules, he will enjoy a long life too. There will never be another ruler like Solomon, God says, at which point the king wakes up and realises that it has all been just a dream. Even so, he returns to Jerusalem as if to seal the deal, standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant and offering sacrifices before throwing a feast for everyone who works for him at the royal court. If you've not met it before, the Ark is the Jews' most sacred artefact, a golden chest containing the tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments and which is believed to be the earthly dwelling place of God. It's been a confident and competent start for Israel's first king. But in sporting terms, David has done all the hard work, delivering a dream pass that Solomon can simply tap into the goal. 
And after the absolute adrenaline rush of David's reign, Solomon's is a quieter affair. Where David fights, Solomon builds, and what David hoards, Solomon shows off. His is by far the most splendid reign of any of Israel's kings, perhaps of any monarch who has ever ruled. This is the golden age of the monarchy, and Solomon is its golden king. His story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can actually find the first 50 episodes of this podcast as a downloadable book. Yes, the podcast that you can read. Simply search for Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible on Amazon. Feel free to leave any comments on our Twitter page. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you feel kind, why not give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening? Thank you very much and see you next time.